Hi, I'm Stephen, your host for Ethically Sourced. This is the first part of a two-part discussion on the ethical and equitable distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. We're back for another episode of Ethically Sourced. I'm privileged to be joined with Dr. Kevin Simon. He is a psychiatrist and he's completing some additional fellowships uh, in the Harvard Medical System at the moment. He works on the ethics board at his hospital and he's well-read on the subjects. So he actually brought one of these articles to my attention. I'm looking forward to digging into this more. Stephen, it's a pleasure to be here again, man. Um, this is a, a important topic given that the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine is currently going on. So what's your experience with uh, clinical medical ethics? That actually started in residency, and I was at Morehouse School of Medicine. That's in Atlanta, Georgia. And so the primary hospital that I was, I was with was Grady Memorial Hospital, or Grady as most people just call it. Um, and that's the largest public hospital in Georgia. And there I had the opportunity for the final two years of my residency to be on the ethics committee and the ethics consult service. Um, so oftentimes, um, you know, if there's a question regarding end of life or medication management or dispute for a loved one, the primary team could consult ethics and we could come in and have a conversation between the providers, the team, and come up with a, um, you know, reasonable solution with regards to the problem at hand. Um, and the ethics committee uh, classically is composed of psychiatrists, OB-GYN, general internists, um, persons from the community, uh, lawyers for the hospital. Um, so you, you want a, a robust, diverse set of uh, personnel in the ethics committee. And then here at Children's, uh, which is the hospital I'm at, Again, with regards to the ethics committee, it's a it's a robust uh, collection of providers of different specialties, um, and so it it happened to me that it started in residency that I had interest in in ethics, and uh, there's this whole field of medical ethics. Um, so I may even pursue some additional training down the line. So for today, we're going to actually delve into a couple of different articles and some of the CDC guidelines on this important issue. As we know, the COVID-19 vaccines are out and have been administered to thousands of people. And we're gonna look at how this rollout occurred and what is the plan for further administration and distribution of this vaccine. So Kevin, um, let's talk about your experience. How was it getting vaccinated? How did you sign up? Um, Just give us the details. Yeah, so my hospital, is one of the few hospitals in the state that has the sub-zero freezer that's required for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and so Pfizer is the uh, manufacturer uh, that we're distributing. And really for, for us, um, my department, so I happen to have two homes, one department of pediatrics, one in the department of psychiatry. Uh, department of psychiatry, um, you know, had an email that was sent out to say, that those who are, you know, routinely in the hospital and want to receive the vaccine uh, sign up. And so I signed up and I believe I got mine on two Tuesdays ago, uh, whatever date that is. And really just sign up, show up and get checked in. They ask you the standard questions, you know, fever, cough, travel. Have you gotten a vaccine in the past two weeks? You say no to all those things. Um, a nice nurse, you know, popped my shoulder uh, with a little... <laughs> Uh, insurmount- it, honestly, the needle is very small. I, I really didn't feel it. 
And then uh, afterwards, you wait. Uh, I waited in the auditorium for 10 to 15 minutes just to make sure I didn't have any kind of anaphylaxis or any other, um, you know, sequelae. And then I scheduled my next uh, shot. And so I'm supposed to get the second one on January 12th at around 6.30 or 7 o'clock. And a part of the monitoring system for the vaccine, and I think this occurs for both Pfizer and, and Moderna, um, this I think it's the CDC has something called V-Safe, so I think Vaccine safe, Safety Protocol, where I get a text message uh, that prompts me every day to say, hey, have you had any symptoms, fever, et cetera? If I say no, 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 um, I just log that in. And that's a way that they're monitoring in real time all the thousands of personnel that, that have received the vaccine. And so, again, that's, I think that's for the CDC, not specifically for the hospital that I work for. So really, for me, the, the, the rollout, even prior to signing up, the hospital made sure that they had um, experts that are in immunology, experts that are in virology, talk about the the vaccine, talk about the, me- the mechanism of it, so that way you could be, you know, well prepared if you volunteered to receive it. Because that's the other thing that I think, you know, sometimes gets misconstrued. It is voluntary. No one's mandating that, right. that I get it um, or that the staff get it, but they, you know, do strongly encourage given the severity that we do see regarding uh, COVID-19. So for, for me, the, the experience has actually been quite anticlimactic, which I think it's supposed to be. Um, just right. a normal phase, just like, you know, getting the annual flu vaccine uh, has been, you know, no issue for me. So I've told my coworkers, you know, what the steps were. And, and some said, oh, you know what, now hearing you talk about you know, you check in and kind of knowing the actual, like, steps assuage some of their own anxiety and, and some have um, gone on to receive it. Nice. So let me ask you this, because under the emergency use authorization, these medications or these vaccines were released, but there is still a protocol or recommendation for the allocation, and it starts with phase 1A, which are healthcare workers and long-term care facility residents. Did you have to verify, or, or how did they verify that you were in this phase 1A immunity? Yes, I think that's because I'm in the hospital. So um, given that the facility that was distributing it is the hospital, they, they're aware of, you know, who is a physician, um, who's seeing patients in person. Um, and so I think that's how they, they verified that I am who I say I am. And then, again, when you walk in and you get checked in, it's not that I just, oh, hey, I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm here for the shot. They take a look at my badge. They assure that I am who I am. I should have my ID. So I think that that's one of the ways that they get at, okay, you are who you say you are, and you're a part of this, you know, first phase that, that should be receiving the vaccine if they if they want to. Gotcha. We'll uh, kind of circle back around to that in a little bit. Um, as we go forward, we're talking about ethics. So I know in medical school and most people in healthcare with kind of the bird's eye view or the, or the basic understanding of ethics, we realize there's the four core principles of medical ethics that everybody memorizes in medical school, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, and autonomy. In other episodes, we'll kind of go deeper into those individual tenets, but uh, Dr. Simon, when it comes to distribution of this vaccine, which ethical tenets uh, would you think should be considered um, in this vaccine distribution plan? Yeah, so I think of the, the core four, 
I would say that justice is probably most salient because it's the, it's the idea of, you know, treating quote-unquote patients fairly and equitably. I think it's the equitable part that um, most of society is thinking about with regards to the vaccine distribution. Um, and again, even even the idea that, that we're talking about here, you know, different phases, right? So, you know, healthcare workers, those in uh, residential nursing units, one could argue, you know, is it necessarily equitable and justice um, laden that, that that's the first group that gets it? Um, so, it, and again, it's what we're going to be talking about later, but in reference to um, the principle, justice would be number one for me. And then the second, I think, would be autonomy, right? So we're not mandating or, or the, you know, the CDC isn't mandating, Pfizer and Moderna is not mandating that people get it. Employers are not mandating it. Um, it is strongly advised, it's strongly recommended, um, but still the person, myself, or those who are listening, have the right to make their own self-governance of this is something that I want to do or this is something that I don't want to do. And if I don't want to do it, no one can pressure me into doing it. So I think that's the that's the um, autonomy. And then um, certainly uh, beneficence and, and, and non-maleficence are, are there too in, in reference to, you know, um, trying to get the most benefit rather than harm and then trying to certainly avoid causing harm to people. Um, so I think that's where, you know, the, the non-maleficence, when I talked about the V-Safe app and, and them checking in on me, making sure that nothing's gone wrong, um, they are, you know, again, trying to follow up. So um, justice and autonomy, I think, but I think those are the, the two most prominent for me that I think most people consciously or unconsciously are thinking about when they hear about the vaccine distribution. Yeah, I think that is uh, very accurate. And there's an article that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is October 22nd of 2020. The article is entitled Scientific and Ethical Principles Underlying Recommendations from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices for COVID-19 Vaccine Implementation. In short, there is a group called the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices. They've been around for quite a while, and they help inform the Center for Disease Control on how they should allocate and distribute vaccines. The group's made up of different people from different backgrounds, physicians, scientists, and even members of the lay public. And knowing that this issue would present as they were working on the vaccine, I think they usually meet three or four times a year, They've been meeting monthly in preparation for this. And in September, this advisory council endorsed four interim ethical principles that were central to the development and implementation of recommendations they would make for this COVID-19 vaccine. And in the setting of the limited supply that we would be starting out with, they decided they'd uh, focus on maximizing benefit and minimizing harm. So that sounds a lot like uh, beneficence and non-maleficence to me. Um, they also mentioned they would focus on equity, justice, and fairness. So I know we talk about the four principles of medical ethics, but there's kind of quite a few more that are that are out there. And the ones that are central to this vaccine being distributed are equity, justice, and fairness. And then of note, they actually mentioned transparency as a fifth principle that they were um, considering that would be foundational to making the right decision. So their goal was to, to be transparent, to foster this public trust that would kind of help with the allocation, 
decisions and public engagement. Yeah, and you know, I think transparency is very important given the historical nature of, of healthcare in our society. And even in the nature of how the vaccine came to be, um, and the title of the, the, the project, quote unquote, Warp Speed, even though in theory, mRNA design and study has been going on for, for more than three decades, it can give people pause to say, wait a minute, how could they make this thing so quickly? And, and how is it going to be distributed so widely now when, you know, in theory, we just learned about coronavirus uh, and, and COVID-19? Essentially, there was a JAMA article, Dr. Fauci actually published it December of 2019 or January of 2020, very early in the year, had published an article talking about this novel virus from overseas coming to America and that we need to develop mechanisms to protect ourselves in that same year to have developed the actual vaccine really does sound almost science, science fiction. So I think the, the idea of being very transparent about how we developed it, how it's going to be distributed, is very important given the historical nature of um, healthcare experimentation, vaccine experimentation um, in, in America. So I think rightfully so, transparency is, is, is big on their list. Um, and and I, I essentially, I guess I, I applaud them for recognizing that they should be um, very transparent for the American public. So we looked at the ethical principles that this, this group instituted in developing their plan. Let's take a look at their plan, because everybody has that question, how is this vaccine going to be distributed? Who is it going to go to first? And I think, uh, you know, on the Center for Disease Control's website, um, we have that information. Kevin, you have that plan for their distribution? Yeah, so they have what they're calling different phases. Um, so phase 1B, phase 1C, um, and then phase 2, and I'll just read it verbatim so that way um, no one's assuming we're, we're cutting corners here. So for phase 1B, uh, they're noting that... And because phase 1A was the healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents. Yeah. Um, so in theory, people like us, doctors, um, long-term care uh, facility personnel, given that they're at greatest risk if they got uh, COVID-19 to have worse outcomes. And then phase... 1B was, so they're noting that approximately nearly 50 million persons, including frontline essential personnel, non-healthcare workers, but those, again, who are on the front lines, um, likely in the hospital, persons over 75 years old, recommended to receive uh, the vaccine in phase 1B of this program. And they're noting that essential workers perform duties across critical infrastructure uh, sectors so again, if you think about the hospital system, those are the personnel that do um, maintenance, that do uh, food preparation, who really interact with a lot of people who are coming and going out in and out of the hospital. And, and shout out to them because they are the unsung heroes in all of this because the work they do really keeps us safe and helps keep the system moving. Very true. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> a small plug, because even myself, I go in the hospital and, and have been continuing to go in since since the ramp up of, of COVID. And they're just there, happy, smiling, 
um, wanting to take care. They're wearing their masks. Um, so it, it, it was it's pretty phenomenal to recognize that there are people who don't necessarily get, you know, the PPE first or protective, um, air, you know, uh, instruments first. Yet because they, you know, are needed, um, they care about the welfare of patients. They care about us as residents and, and fellows and attending that they're doing um, a judicious job of, of showing up. And so, so that's generally phase 1B personnel. Um, then there's phase 1C. And then this, it says the vaccine should be offered to persons age 65 to 74, persons 16 to 64, so again, this is lumping everybody, with medical conditions that increase your risk of severe COVID-19 and essential workers not previously included in the 1A or the 1B. And so they're noting that that would actually be approximately 130 million persons are included in phase 1C. So again, that's um, older adults and then adults who have medical conditions um, and then any essential worker who is not included in 1A or 1B. And it's, it's notable because when you think about, you know, people with medical conditions. So now this is where the information that we're seeing, one, on social media with, with you know, uh, doctors like Dr. Rutland, Dr. German, who talk about the different components of COVID and how it's affecting different people, whether that's, you know, you have asthma, diabetes, or any um, uh, other con- medical, chronic medical condition. Um, you, you start to recognize that there are a lot of people who need to get this vaccine before we can say that we're quote unquote over the hump or we're really uh, in that next phase where we can kind of go around without a mask or, or, or doing those preventative measures. 130 million people is a lot of people. Not quite there yet. Got a ways to go. <laughs> no, not quite there yet. Then there is phase two. Um, and so phase two says includes all persons age greater than or equal to 16 who are not already recommended for the vaccine in phase 1A, 1B, 1C. Um, and it says currently in accordance with the recommended, recommended age and condition of use, any authorized COVID-19 vaccine may be used um, by the time that we're getting to, to phase two. Um, so just to kind of recap. so. Generally, for phase one, including A, B, and C, you have clinical, non-clinical healthcare workers that are in direct contact with people who have COVID-19 or, or SARS coronavirus, um, long-term care facilities, um, elderly folks. Then we're talking about healthcare workers um, doing non-COVID-facing care. So again, thinking about maintenance staff, janitors, uh, housekeeping, food services, that's all lumped into phase one, phase um, two. If you have a, essentially if you have a comorbidity, right? So chronic diseases um, and you're an adult, chronic diseases and an adult, also lumped into that phase two category. You're gonna start thinking about other people who are gonna interact with a lot of people, right? So think about teachers are gonna interact with a lot of, a lot of people, grocery store personnel interact with a lot of people, sanitation workers, public workers, that's generally our phase two. And then in theory, the phase, as they would call it, phase two, if you can further break it down technically, you have phase three, everybody gets it. And, and 
theory as phase three. Um, so yeah. um, they they they've broken it down in what would seem to be an equitable and just just justified way, but we're we're recognizing that even in this early phase of what we're really only about into our second month of distribution, and we're hearing stories and reports already of persons trying to circumvent and get ahead of the line, um, which is unfortunate. We're definitely getting to that in a little bit, some crazy stories that are already popping up. Before we get to that point, within these certain groups, the question is, do some people need this vaccine sooner than others? So this article came out in the Journal of American Medical Association. The date was November 24th. This article was entitled, Is it lawful and ethical to prioritize racial minorities for COVID-19 vaccines? Excellent article if you get a chance to read it. Um, Dr. Gostin is an author on here. He's done a lot of great uh, ethics papers, especially concerning this COVID-19 pandemic. This paper, though, breaks it down and speaks to the issue of the effect COVID-19 has had on communities of color. It gives the data where in individuals identifying as black, there's a 3.4-fold higher mortality rate compared to population size. The mortality rate in the black community is about 131 out of 100,000. In communities of indigenous and Latino uh, personnel, you get a 3.3-fold higher mortality rate. So that Advisory Council on Immunization Practice actually contracted out to this organization called the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And this group actually recommended prioritization of racial minorities who are worse off socioeconomically and epidemiologically. Now, the, the issue of race and how you use that as a category is a whole other issue in and of itself, which we can't get into uh, here for sake of time. But the question remains, is the ethical justification for prioritizing economically worse off racial minorities, uh, is that legal and ethical? Now, it is based on some of the uh, epidemiological data that we have and the fact that these communities have been hit harder, they've been ravaged, in fact, by this uh, vaccine. What are, what are your thoughts, Kevin? So I, it's a great question because, one, we know that race is a social concept, right? So um, folks who are born in sub-Saharan Africa do not consider themselves inherently black. It's, it's when they migrate somewhere and are told, oh, you're black, that then race becomes a, a significant factor. And so, unfortunately, in our country, race tends to be paired with a lot of um, unfortunate circumstances that we deem, like, you know, determinants of health, right? So if you are mm-hmm. black um, by identification, which you look like, you know, typically there's a tendency that you may live in a um, lower income area. Um, you may have higher rates of poverty. And so I think from the data thus far, despite race being socially uh, created, it is impacting those who get coronavirus by worse death, higher hospitalizations. So the idea that those who are identifying as Black, Black American, Black Afro-Caribbean, getting the COVID vaccine first does sound reasonable. The challenge here is 
the precedent that's been set by our history would indicate that it is that same exact group that's going to be the most resistant to being deemed, oh, you want me to be the first, right? Because it's going to be yeah. perceived as, is this, an ex- is this ex- experimental? Is this um, some trick that you're trying to, to do to me? And so unfortunately, yes, black and brown persons should probably receive it first, given the, the nature of the past, uh, essentially past 11 months that we've seen, yet they're going to be the most resistant at receiving the vaccine. And, and actually, even outside of COVID-19, when we just look at vaccine numbers and distribution and administration, Black and, and Latinos and adult persons tend to be lower on accepting of vaccines. So now you're, touch, you're saying the group that most often doesn't accept vaccines to now be the first to get a truly new and novel vaccine. It's, it's a hard road to, to travel for a public health personnel um, with regards to vaccine distribution. Tune in next week where we'll dive deeper into this discussion on the ethics of prioritizing race and ethnicity for vaccine distribution. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Ethically Sourced, a supplement of the Black Doctors podcast, where we focus on presenting information and resources that can proactively improve the care our patients receive. We hope that by generating these discussions on clinical medical ethics and culturally competent care, we will have a positive impact on the lives of patients that look like us.